Before we start the episode this week, a quick announcement about how the summer is going to go. Hi, everybody. This is Chris. And this is Bree. And we're pleased, at least for ourselves, to announce that we're going to take it a little easy this summer. We had a pandemic. You guys are probably going to have like a really fun summer, and we want to have one too. So what we've decided to do is to alternate between new episodes and replays, re-replaying some old favorites. Think of it as the favorites of our favorites, as well as episodes that you guys have really liked. So look forward to re-listening to some of those great episodes and still getting new content every two weeks. And also right now for Amadeus. Man, Blockbuster used to get you with those fees. You had to, like, get them shits back. Welcome to Replaying Favorites. It's the podcast with too many notes. I'm Brie Callahan. I'm Chris Kelly. And that's an inside joke because Chris lost his notes for our last episode, but we got (laughs) through it. And this week, there will be far, far too many notes. And you will certainly learn why as we watch 1984's Amadeus. Chris, how did you never see this movie? So I have a fun story about blockbuster video to tell you. (laughs) Children... For those of you who... Go on. From days of yore, long ago, when I had to take my horse-drawn carriage out to the store (laughs) to get a physical DVD, Amadeus was a two-disc movie, which they accomplished by putting the movie on two sides of a single disc. Mm. So I did rent Amadeus, but put it in with the wrong side (laughs) down. And so I was real confused at this movie just starting at a 10. And I watched maybe 15, 20 minutes of it before I realized like, oh, I am near the end of the film, not at the beginning. And then I was like, well, I'm going to wait a couple days and I'll like get back in fresh. And then somehow I never got around to actually watching it. So I have seen, I would say, a 10 minute chunk of like the last quarter of the film but i have no context for anything that happened except that cynthia nixon was there oh my god you actually recognize cynthia nixon that is a bit of stealth casting that i may not have remembered to talk about so i'm glad we brought it up in the intro well i rented this at probably the height of sex in the city-dom so it makes sense Well, in addition to Tom Hulse and F. Murray Abraham, who are the big draws for this movie, I think you will be interested to learn that Jack's mom from Into the Woods is also a prominent part of this movie. Oh, what a delight. So why don't we watch Amadeus? You'll finally get to see all of it. And we'll meet you guys back after the break. Welcome back from the break. If you are anything like us, you have just watched Amadeus. Amadeus is a fictionalized telling of Mozart's life and the, again, fictionalized rivalry between obnoxious genius Mozart, played by Tom Hulse, and the envious Salieri, played by F. Murray Abraham. Salieri narrates the story as an old man giving confession to a priest, played by Richard Frank, after attempting to take his own life, claiming that he killed Mozart. 
The film flips between showing the two as young men in the court of Emperor Joseph II, played by Jeffrey Jones, Mozart's relationship with wife Stanzi, played by Elizabeth Barrage, and his money and drinking problems, as well as highlighting many of Mozart's major works. While in the present, 1823, Salieri meditates on his relationship to God and mediocrity. Amadeus was directed by Milos Forman with a screenplay by Peter Schaffer, who also wrote the stage play. Amadeus also stars Simon Callow as impresario Emmanuel Schenecker, Roy Dorais as Mozart's domineering father, and a surprise appearance by 17-year-old Cynthia Nixon. The music was conducted by Neville Mariner, leading the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields Orchestra. Made for $18 million, Amadeus brought in $90 million and was nominated for 53 awards, winning 40, including eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Actor for F. Murray Abraham. Tom Hulse was also nominated in that category for both an Oscar and a Golden Globe, and F. Murray Abraham won them both. But let's leave that all aside. Chris, what did you think of this almost three-hour-long Amadeus? So... How dare you? <laughs> here's the thing. The bar was set incredibly high because I have known people who count this among their favorite films for decades. I enjoyed many parts of this movie. I don't know that it rose to the heights that I expected it to. And I think some of that is on me. Wow. And I think some of that is wow. how a film of this nature ages. I thought a lot of it was good. and. You might say that I have too many notes. Hey! <laughs> I'm so clever. You've redeemed yourself only slightly by managing to work in one of, I think, film's most beloved characters. We'll talk about the actor a little bit, too. So give me some, like, a couple quick highlights and a couple quick lowlights for you. Like, what worked, what didn't? I mean, the biggest thing that worked is F. Murray Abraham. He is titanic in this role. I could have watched him do absolutely anything. I was nine million percent invested. He's so perfect. I've seen this movie a billion times. I love him in this role. I looked at his IMDb today. I've never seen a single other thing than he's ever been in. Yeah, I couldn't tell you a thing about the man other than that he's in this movie. And that shocks me because this is the kind of performance that should have been like an Anthony Hopkins style debut where he spends the next decade making nothing but bangers, you know? He sort of went back to theater after this. So he read for a much smaller role because he was already in Scarface. He had kind of already risen up as like a character actor that was like ready for bigger things. But it is wild that you're right. He did not become a staple of modern American cinema after delivering this performance. Literally, after seeing this, I'm like, why wasn't he Hannibal Lecter? Jesus Christ. He would have been terrific. I am noticing, however, that you have not pointed out Tom Hulse. So what was your feeling about him? So this is not a Tom Hulse critique. This is a script, direction, general film critique. We are less enamored as a society with stories of white men who are incredible assholes but get away with it because of their talent. After seeing The Social Network or whatever that movie about Steve Jobs was, something like this doesn't feel as exceptional. Like, I spent a lot of time looking at Mozart being brilliant, but also 
loathed. And it's not just that Salieri hates him. Most people dislike him because he is objectively an asshole. A modern sensibility is that, like, why are we still letting him do this? Please kick him out. So I watched this movie pretty religiously as a child because since it was about classical music, my dad thought it worthy of watching a film, which usually he wouldn't be bothered to do. (laughs) I adore Tom Hulse's performance. Like, I think because he has such a childlike dickishness to him that as a kid, you really relate to Mozart more than anyone else because he's acting like how a child acts. And he looks so young that he doesn't look like a man in his 30s. So I don't have any of the connotations of this is a horrible person and I don't care what happens to him. Like I'm gutted by every single frame of Tom Hulse's performance here. I wanted to relate to him very badly. I was desperate for the film to give us someone who really objectively, without reservation, enjoys him. Even his wife and his father seem to be tepid at best about the man. (laughs) I think Stanzi and his father really love him. They just wish he was different. And who doesn't feel that way about some of their relatives, right? Like, There's that moment where the father arrives in the stairwell and Mozart is stricken and then his father opens his arms wide and they they go in for a hug. Like, I think that these are complicated relationships. I see Mozart as more complicated in this script than as, well, the vulgar man that he says that he is. I guess I think that you are going to find that that is your own bias. I don't think the script is nice to him in that way. I think he is not projected as ever being kind to anyone else. He is not projected as taking care of anyone. He's not projected as caring what anyone thinks. I couldn't find redeeming qualities. I saw a lot of people looking for those qualities. This is a compelling story. I think it would be more compelling if Salieri was not so obviously correct about Mozart. That's a really good point. I just think Hulse brings such a physicality and, like, earnestness. I think Stanzi recognizes his flaws. His mother-in-law certainly recognizes his flaws. His father recognizes his flaws. But he has an infectiousness about him that I think, like, draws people in, at least for me. I mean, Tom Hulse had a really difficult line to walk with this performance because The script is incredibly aggressive in terms of Mozart being an asshole. And he manages to play that he doesn't know what a dick he's being. And his entire obliviousness is kind of almost enough to excuse it. Like, he's just innocent enough that you almost want to give him a pass. And the wonderful counterpoint to that is that Salieri literally admits that he wants to murder this man and continues to play an absolute villain. And I am still absolutely on the edge of my seat waiting for him to come back in. I'm like, when do I get more Salieri? Let's talk a little bit more about F. Murray Abraham before we get into anything else. There's a moment early on after the priest has come to speak with him and he says, all men are equal in God's eyes. And F. Murray Abraham turns to him and he says, are they? And it's at that moment that you know that you're in for something special. Yeah, I have a similar note about that exact moment because you can see him 
a snake assessing its prey in that moment. Like, you know that he's going to spend the next two and a half hours absolutely picking this man to shreds. There's a shot very near the end of the priest looking like he has run a marathon. I know. I would also say that Richard Frank, who is quite low build in the film, does an excellent job as the priest. He isn't given a ton to do aside from react to things. And he's such a great foil to old Salieri in the same way that Tom Hulse is a great foil to young Salieri. It's funny because young Salieri is often so cool and composed and thinking things through. And then he has this completely different character as old Salieri, who is like mischievous and fucked up and like relishes ruining this priest. It's the evolution of all the anger that he is repressed for the entire film, and he's never going to get to actually tear Mozart apart. So he gets to take it all out on this hapless little man who happens to wander into his lair. It's (laughs) so delicious. I assume that the play has much more of like Salieri and the priest as a framing device. I actually haven't ever looked at the script for that. Yeah, neither have I. The play is quite different. I haven't seen it performed, so I'm not sure exactly how, but a number of characters are added. It was really fleshed out and Foreman and uh, Schaffer worked on it together. Obviously, you couldn't do all of the lush sets and costumes and like everything else that's involved in this movie. In fact, maybe that's where we should turn because like, did this movie deliver on the wigs for you? Did it give you just enough wig? I have notes about the wigs. There's a really interesting thing that is done with all the wigs because Uh period wigs would have all been hard front wigs where you can really tell that someone's wearing a wig. (laughs) Everyone in this movie is wearing the softest lace front I have ever seen where it really looks like it is their hair, which is very confusing because we're all supposed to know that it's a wig. I had a question early on about whether Salieri, in fact, just has long hair because he does not wear a white powdered wig. So I thought he's supposed to just have long hair and he's the one unwigged character. But it is later revealed that that is a wig. He just apparently invented lace front technology. (laughs) I did notice that because I did look and I was like, oh, yeah, no, this is actually a really good lace front that they got on him. I wonder why they spent the time. I mean, this is probably that 13 going on 30 thing again, right? Where you don't want to look too out of step with what people today think of as what a wig looks like. Otherwise, it's going to look too crazy. I think this movie, though, is a great example of what happens when you just put a ton of thought and money into everything you're doing. Old Salieri, they do a great thing where his hands, someone has taken the time to draw blue veins on all of his hands so that they look old. There's a scene late in the film where Tom Hulse has been writing all night and someone comes to visit at the door and he has ink all over just his middle finger in the way that looks like he has been writing all night. It just sort of now dawned on me that the reason not everyone wears a hard front wig is because it makes Mozart stand out because his wigs are garbage. By highlighting everyone has a very certain type of wig, except Salieri's is much darker and that makes him stand out in every crowd. And Mozart wears a poorly styled hard front wig that immediately puts him at a distance from everyone. So it is a thoughtful well-reasoned use of an anachronistic wig technology. The number of times wig technology has been said on this podcast 
beggars belief. <laughs> but anyway, I think there's also a class thing going on and a vulgarity thing going on, right? Because in this telling, Stanzi comes from a landlord class. And so Stanzi has the same thing where like her looks are always a little garish and like really open in the front and like just a little bit too vulgar for even the times based on the other women that we see. Can we talk about the actress that has been cast as Stanzi? Sure. Is she good? I had the same question, but watching it this time, I really liked how much late in the film Stanzi goes to bat for her family and for her husband. What did you think? I see I see your mixed feelings face. Oh, I don't think she was good. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I think you're right that she has good moments, but that's kind of never what you want to hear about a performance. And I think... In a film where the two leads are such incredible forces, it sucks to see someone who's not at their level paired with them. Like, she is really done a disservice by almost only talking to either Mozart or Salieri, and she just can't hang. I think that is fair. She was brought in extremely late in the production. Meg Tilly was supposed to play Stanzi and she hurt her foot and they literally were like, well, we can't have you in a cast for seven weeks. And they went with someone else. I think it's fair to say that she can't hang with either Tom Hulse or F. Murray Abraham. I don't think that the script gives her as many opportunities for greatness. I think they probably weren't interested in having like a super great actor as Stanzi either, because this is a movie about Mozart and Salieri and their relationship. I have a lot of critiques about everything that's not Mozart and Salieri specifically, because I think you're right that things that aren't Mozart and Salieri are, if not afterthoughts, certainly not thought of quite as much. Did you do any research into who else was considered for some of the roles in this movie, specifically Mozart and Salieri? I did learn that the Broadway cast was Tim Curry and Ian McKellen, which I would absolutely murder one of my family members to see. <laughs> Interestingly, Simon Callow, who is also in the movie, you will note him as Papageno. He's the guy who commissions the magic flute. He was the original Mozart in the stage play in Britain. Oh, okay. So when they were going to make this into a movie, here's just a short list of the people who were considered for Mozart. Mark Hamill and Tim Curry, who had both played Mozart on Broadway. Mm -hmm. Kenneth Branagh, who apparently was offered the role but dropped out when he knew that everyone else was going to be American. Mick Jagger. No. Mm. Mel Gibson. Oh. David Bowie. What? Barishnikov. Okay. And Andrew Lloyd Webber. No. Mm -mm. That's, that's the worst one. <laughs> and then Donald Sutherland, I guess, also read for a Salieri. Legitimately, I can't imagine anyone else playing this role, though I would like to see the F. Murray Abraham Mick Jagger version of this movie. I think <laughs> his desire to murder would have come through loud and clear. Can you imagine this brilliant man being paired against just some rock star who's never done a movie and can't act that well? And he's just like, really? Also, like, part of it is that, like, Tom Hulse is like a small guy and he's just like ebullient and like full of energy. And you've got, if you've got like long limbed Mick Jagger like running around, it just makes absolutely no sense. I mean, 
each of those casting selections is bad for a different reason. Like, it's each a unique piece of shit. Like, I love David Bowie, but his cold alien sexuality is so dead wrong for this role. Like, it is comedic to think of how... That would be like an SNL sketch. Like, it would be so off. I mean, a testament to both those actors that... Like Salieri, any wrong note would be a diminishment and anything out of place would cause the structure to fall. And I think that that is the case with this movie. Like, they got the two best actors. And I genuinely feel so bad for Tom Hulse that he and F. Murray Abraham were put head to head for best actor because it's hard to argue that F. Murray Abraham doesn't run away with this movie, but missing him, Tom Hulse would obviously have won that award that year. And Tom Hulse is another one who, while I'm aware of him from other things, I just don't think of him as, like, a bold leading man. Like, I've seen him do a couple character roles here and there, and he's great in them. But he also didn't have a meteoric rise after this. No, he does, like, I think, parenthood after this. And then he sort of stops acting. He is a producer now on a lot of shows. Some people theorize that he may eventually win his Oscar for being a producer of, like, a play that winds up being made into a movie. For me, his performance in this movie is so summed up by him flailing down a hallway to one of the most beautiful pieces of music. I wish that that had been our introduction to Mozart, because... We spend a lot of time building up to his entrance, and there's a lot of, we don't see his face, and Salieri is looking for him. And I think a more interesting introduction would have been that he is late, and we don't know why, and he's a little disheveled, and it's just sort of a little more enigmatic. Because witnessing him drag a woman under a table while she screams no, and then saying, eat my shit backwards, it was baffling and incredibly off-putting and yes she was laughing throughout again maybe that's a modern sensibility thing but i was not thrilled with his introduction (laughs) i do think it's a modern sensibility thing i also did watch it with a mounting sense of cringe that first scene with stanzi does a lot of work to show exactly who he is i would have liked a an introduction that made him more complicated than just he's an asshole and a genius. There's nuance to he's vulgar, but this woman genuinely loves him because he has good qualities. And we don't see any of his good qualities other than his music, which I knew coming in. I started to say that it's not clear why Stanzi loves him, but she seems to find his sense of humor genuinely funny. I think the thing that I'm caught in, which is like, making excuses for Mozart's characterization in this is what the movie is doing also, which is like, you give a lot of passes to someone who is just a legitimate genius. And like, the movie doesn't pull any punches there either, right? It's not like he's really good, but there's other people who are really good. Like, he's just a magic person. And so the rules don't apply. And I think that's the other, in some ways, structural problem that I had, though, is that we lean really heavily on what an asshole he is. We also will not stop talking about what a genius he is. I watched a lot of people being impressed with him. The challenge is that no one comes into this movie not knowing who Mozart is. Like, we have a cultural understanding that, of course, he is a genius. He's been remembered for hundreds of years. And 
after being told he's a genius for the first literal hour of this film and still having more than 90 minutes left, I got to tell you, Milos, I got you. I'm going to step back to talking about the more for more sake of the filming of this movie. Tom Hulse learned how to play the piano for this movie. He already knew how to play guitar. He spent six months practicing the piano six hours a day. F. Murray Abraham also taught himself how to read music and how to conduct for this. Musicians have watched this movie and things are note for note in place where they should be. Tom Hulse is playing all those parts. Even the upside down piano that he plays at the party is him playing it. Like they worked really hard to make sure that he could pull off everything that Mozart has to do in this show. And that's bananas. That's the thing is that like that is impressive to know, but there is zero reason why that couldn't be a stand-in's hands. That wouldn't change anything about the scene. You know, no one said no to anything in this film. I can't believe it only cost $18 million. The movie looks incredible. There are so many locations that are so ornamental and gorgeous, and you can just feel all of the old European money in it. Like, it is beautiful. It's very lush. I guess a lot of it was filmed in Czechoslovakia, which is where Milos Forman is from, uh, which at the time was under Soviet rule. At one of the opera performances, they have all of the extras sitting there. They were all American. It was Independence Day. So they all stood up, started waving an American flag and singing the Star Spangled Banner, except for 30 extras who they all then realized were part of like the Czech secret police (laughs) who were there to watch them. Wow. I think maybe that's a good transition for us to talk about some of the actual themes of this movie. I wanted to get the fun stuff out of the way before we talked about God for like an hour. There's a lot of God in here, though (laughs) I did have a note that it is a full hour before Salieri says he is going to abandon God and murder Mozart, which I felt like could have been introduced sooner. Well, Salieri just wants to be God's representative on Earth. And instead, he gets this like little monster. And he's the only person who recognizes that this is the voice of God. An hour in is not the time to bring that up. Like, I think part of it is that this movie isn't about Mozart. It's about Salieri. Yeah, we don't have any disagreement there. But I think the first 30 to 45 minutes kind of position Mozart very centrally to the point that we see a lot of Salieri telling the story, but we don't get his motivations. I want to know from the get why he's telling that story and the framing device of the priest and why he's talking about Mozart congeal an hour in when he reveals this. And that's too late. I disagree only because I don't mind the almost three hour running time of this. Like, I'm happy to watch F. Murray Abraham spin out this yarn as far as it wants to go. But yeah, this movie is not about Mozart. This is a movie about Salieri's fight with God via his avatar. I think the only reason why we spend so much time with Tom Hulse is to set Salieri up as the villain, because if you didn't spend this much time with Mozart, you wouldn't be that mad that he kills him. Does he kill him? Are we going with that as a definite? That's what I started to correct myself in saying is that I didn't realize until this watching of it how early the makeup department, which also won an Oscar, starts to paint Tom Hulse with a pallor and you see him drinking a lot. Like, 
I think the movie wants to have it a little bit both ways, but I think Salieri thinks that the Requiem is what killed Mozart. Yeah, there's a lot of superstition about this piece of music killing Mozart. I was pretty of the mind that Mozart was just killing himself. Like, he's obviously out partying and drinking quite a bit. He's not taking care of himself. He's just sort of burning the candle at both ends. It seemed pretty clear to me that you can't murder someone by commissioning a piece of music. But that's what is so great about the script is that the only thing that Salieri thinks he has done in his entire life, he hasn't actually done, and he is yet more of a mediocrity. God, that final line of him going... We can skip to the end. There's no rules here. This is a free podcast. Okay, good. Some things didn't land in this movie. That final scene of him being wheeled through the asylum is one of the greatest things I've ever seen on film. Who could have any notes for that? The music is beautiful and swelling. You get one last chance at that ridiculous Tom Hulse laugh. You just see a man totally consumed and knowing, well, he's come to a peace, right, with his mediocrity. But I do think that he has self-deluded himself into that he has had more of an impact on Mozart than he actually had. Yeah, that's the thing is that there's a lot of complexities in this script and they get real rangy at times. And I think another edit would have helped. But I do think they always have this exact end in mind and they do really stick the landing. A thing that I noticed this time is that I think if we are looking at Mozart as an avatar of God speaking to Salieri is... His last words are, forgive me, forgive me, and they're spoken to Salieri. That really hit me for some reason this time. I was gutted that Mozart looks at Salieri and is like, I kind of always thought you didn't like my work and you didn't like me. And it made me really desperate for like two more scenes where the two of them interact. I think it was a really precious, sad reveal that Mozart actually really did care what Salieri thought. And the nuance that he actually did have those insecurities would have really helped. But isn't that the moment of catharsis also, where you realize that this unredeemable creature did actually have an inner life? No. Wow, we have gone, this is like a comedy podcast, and I'm like, isn't that the moment of catharsis when like God and mediocrity and like all these things come together? Like, I cannot believe, I mean, I guess I can believe because this is a very serious movie in some ways, how much this has devolved into like actual film analysis, which I'm sorry, we won't ever do again. Wait till you see what we watch next week. <laughs> but they each kind of have their own little like half of the Venn diagram, right? Like, Mozart is entirely hedonistic and vulgar and all these things. And Salieri is supposed to be the complete opposite of that. But he wants what Mozart has. Like, he wants to be all of the things that Mozart is. And so he sets himself up deliberately to not do those things in order to please God. But it appears that what God wants is this, like, horrible, lurid little monster. And, like, to give Peter Schaffer his due... God wanting a disgusting little thing to be his voice is one of the cooler things that he's written. <laughs> it's so fucked up. I mean, to me, at least, the obvious implication is that 
there isn't actually a god here. Because if everything that Salieri believes about God's wants is true, then there is no way that Mozart as the voice of God would exist. I think it's more that God is perverse and likes to fuck with people is I think where Schaffer is going with this, because that is also kind of the theme of one of his other plays, Equus. So religion being perverse and fucking with your life is like a lot of the themes of his work. Huh. I think this movie believes in a Christian God who delights in screwing over a person who isn't perfect. I guess the counterpoint is that Mozart is also not perfect. And I mean, I guess he is screwed over in the end that he drinks himself to death, but he's also given many a reward. I guess. But what are they? Like the real life Mozart didn't get to see most of his works achieve notoriety. We see some of that in Amadeus, but like a little night music, which is what the priest recognizes at the beginning, wasn't even published until well after his death. Stanzi actually published it. I think the perversity is the point in this, that like no one gets out clean. Like it's a very dark vision of religion. But in a weird way, I love that it resolves into an acceptance of mediocrity because most of us are mediocre, right? And Salieri attempting and spending his entire life trying to rise above what he actually is, is why he wastes most of his life. But also, I think it's clear that Salieri is not mediocre. He's not as brilliant as Mozart, but he's still a strong composer. He does write an opera that he's told is one of the best operas of all time, but he can't hear that because it's not the right praise from the right person about the right thing or whatever. Like, he's still accomplished. We're going to have to, like, amp up the laughs here in a second because I am, like, deep into, like, a philosophical space, which is, I think, where Peter Schaffer wants to go. But that's not where this podcast goes usually. I was about to say, you are the one who chose a three-hour philosophy piece. I don't know how you're blaming us for having a long, boring podcast now. <laughs> We've had a long, boring podcast for a while. <laughs> we usually edit it down to a shorter, boring podcast. <laughs> An excellent point. I will say that I don't think this movie gets enough credit for being really funny because the ballet without the music is hilarious. Like those two gentlemen just like leaping into the center of the stage, totally alone. <laughs> there is a lot of great humor. There's just so much here that like, is this a philosophical study of a man's genius? Is this a lighthearted comedy about a guy who's kind of a dick? Is this a movie about watching people watch opera? Like there's room <laughs> enough for three full films in here. And I think that might be what we ended up with. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I like about Emperor Joseph II is that he doesn't realize that he is hosting like a barely simmering ethnic tension in every single conversation that he's having. Oh, do we have to go over the Jeffrey Jones shit now? Yeah, we got to talk about Jeffrey Jones. This is my movie. I'll do it. Jeffrey Jones was arrested in 2002 for hiring an underage boy to take some presumably naked pictures. 
I had thought that Deadwood was pre that, but he was cast in Deadwood after that. Those charges are from 2002. Ooh, I can give Milos Foreman a pass for casting him. Deadwood, you're on thin ice. You're on broken ice. Like, yikes. Counterpoint, this is maybe his best performance? Do I wish they had cast someone else? Absolutely. Do I think he did a bad job? No. It's tough to express a real pro-Jeffrey Jones sentiment, (laughs) like, given the context. I guess in a movie about separating the genius of a person's art from the absolute disaster of their personal life, we can use that lens to be like, yes, this specific performance is pretty good. But also, we can look at this movie as a chance to be like, what an asshole that guy was. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're not going to spend that much time on this performance for precisely those reasons, but he's really funny in it. The character is so obtuse, so silly, and so underplayed. It's really a terrific comic performance. I'm cringing as I say it. Please go ahead. So as we're talking about side characters, I can get us to someone who we do want to talk about. Yay! Barbara Byrne as Frau Weber, Mozart's mother-in-law and former landlady. Bless. I am in a real pickle with her because I love her performance, which I believe is only two indelibly perfect scenes. She is not in the same movie as everyone else. No. The passing out in particular is too much. And if you want to talk about things that should be removed, I agree. Yeah, it's just tough because not everyone is super grounded in this movie. I think, obviously, Mozart in particular is pretty out there. But I think it works best when he is the most outlandish person surrounded by people who are in like a fairly standard reality. And even the people who are funny are funny in a realistic way. She is the only person who's more cartoonish than him, and it seems like she came from another planet. I don't disagree. She's very obnoxious in a way that Mozart is, but Stanzi is not. So I'm just going to psychoanalyze Stanzi here, I guess. Like, if she's learned to tolerate her mother, perhaps she can learn to tolerate Wolfie. I do, however, love her giving that frantic monologue about Stanzi that winds up turning into the inspiration for the Queen of the Night because that character is also so outlandish in terms of like a piece of singing. Like it's so hard and it's so high and it's so beautiful. I kind of like those pieces where you see Mozart taking from his life and that is the most direct one. I still would cut her entire character because we are deep into the film by the time we get to that monologue. The plot point that Mozart takes from his life and turns it into music has been made many times over by the time we get there. So nothing is added other than I would love to film this aria. He's also told Simon Callow that he has the whole thing written, which if that's the case, he doesn't need her inspiration. Also, that character, the landlady slash mother-in-law, is an added character for the movie. And again, this is a very long movie. There's a lot of a lot here. How dare you identify the things that were tacked on? (laughs) I mean, to the point of parents being a weird thing in this film, I don't know that we need Mozart's dad. I get that we want to establish some daddy issues with him. I think we could have spent that time 
actually deepening his relationship to Salieri. And if you want to pepper in some father approval shit with Salieri, you can do it through the two of them interacting. I didn't care about Mozart's father. To me, I didn't think it was enough. I didn't think they went hard enough at it to get Don Giovanni out of it and to get the terror that Mozart feels upon seeing the visage of his dead father at the door in the comedy tragedy mask. And when Stanzi has her go at him and she's like, you know, you just sleep all day and you don't do anything around here. Like, that almost diminished him a little bit, whereas I would have liked to have seen him be a little bit more of a formidable figure. Yeah, I think that's right, actually, is that especially in that fight, Mozart just walks away and starts writing. You don't get the sense that he's emotionally invested in either of those real people. He and his wife, he and his father don't have a connection as much as he has a connection to his desk. What's also weird is that, like, Stanzi never gets brought into any of the characters that we see. We have the connection between his dad and Don Giovanni. We have the connection between his mother-in-law and the magic flute. I would have really loved to have seen a connection between Stanzi and what I think is one of the most beautiful arias that uh, Mozart has ever written, The End of the Marriage of Figaro, which we see performed where a man declares his love for this woman and she's like, doesn't know how to handle it because she's in disguise. Like, I think that would have been a really nice way to like triangulate those three positions. I think that was a missed opportunity. We've gone to a really serious place. <laughs> Again, I'd like you to look at the film you selected. <laughs> Unfortunately, one of the main sources of comedy in this movie turned out to be a child molester. So we got a little stuck. Oh, boy. This movie sets out with you thinking that F. Murray Abraham is going to be the straight man to Tom Hulse's like crazy eccentric guy. But I think they really switch roles a lot. And I think they really do put a lot of comedy into F. Murray Abraham's mouth, but also sometimes just his reactions, like in the scene where Mozart redoes that march that he writes for him. And you just watch F. Murray Abraham's face drain of blood and his smile just like go from big to just completely hating his life. Oh, yeah. F. Murray Abraham has a real B. Arthur quality of being able to get a laugh out of you. <laughs> from just giving a death stare. I think he is a master underplayer of the comedy. I will say, though, that as the old Salieri, he's got like a real Lily Tomlin vibe right at the top. <laughs> the other thing that I think F. Murray Abraham rings a ton of comedy out of, and you know I love people eating on film, is Salieri's love of snacks. <laughs> The only reason that he meets Mozart in the first place is because he follows that, like, train of food. He feeds Stanzi. He feeds Cynthia Nixon. He's constantly eating. And you know, that makes me happy. Yeah, he's the Audrey Hepburn of this film for that reason. I did notice it. I thought it was an interesting character detail. Like, he's such an ascetic otherwise. The one thing he allows himself is constant indulgence in sugar. Yeah, he's so prim. Apparently, the real-life Salieri was known for having a sweet tooth, so that's, like, one of the things that they carried over. But yeah, he's so precise, aside from that. It's cute. It's so weird what they chose to keep historically accurate and not in this film. It has an almost a knight's tale haphazardness. <laughs> God, I want to get my hands on a version of the script of the play. I'm I'm very curious about what changes were made 
to get this to film. Even better, I would love a filmed version of the Tim Curry, Ian McKellen Broadway version, which I am sure is crackling. Oh, imagine how great that must be. Uh, However, the play is available at your local library. Great. As always, we could have done the extra step of doing the research to see how these two things compared. We did not. But we might do it afterwards, and we won't tell you about it. Oh, yeah. I think it's clear that I didn't Google Amadeus script at any point prior to this. I did. I mean, I did just now. (laughs) (laughs) One thing we haven't talked about that much is the music, which is kind of its own character in this movie. Most of it is Mozart's music. Even the march that Salieri writes for Mozart is actually a Mozart piece that they transposed. Hmm. I'm not sure about the Salieri opera. I think that might also be a piece of Mozart's music. However, Salieri's music got a real uptick after this movie, and he actually got more famous than he had been in hundreds of years. Hashtag justice for Salieri. (laughs) It is really interesting to involve so much of Mozart's music in that it emphasizes how much of his music you know, even if you didn't necessarily think going in that you knew it. Mm -hmm. In some ways, that undercuts all the scripting talking about how brilliant he is, because again... You don't need to tell me that if I come in aware of how culturally relevant he is just because his music is fucking everywhere still. It's a double-edged sword. I was really touched by the scene at the vaudeville where they were doing sort of a medley of all of Mozart's works because we learned from the script that Salieri had Don Giovanni killed and La Nase de Figaro like didn't take off. And so Mozart felt like his music wasn't known and seeing all the like common people being able to just like sing his songs. I was really taken by that scene. Actually, it's really underplayed by the movie, like they don't make a big deal out of it. And you just see Hulse looking out being really happy that someone like loves and recognizes his work. And I, I this time in particular, I found that really touching. I noticed the same thing. And I have a similar critique about his previous opera, because Salieri has a wonderful line where he says that he made sure that the opera only had five performances, but he went to every one. That was such an important piece of their relationship. The fact that it flew by in one line, I was like, no, that's that's the movie I want to watch. Come back. (laughs) I mean, how many times do you want to see Don Giovanni staged? I guess one of my complaints about this movie is that I do a lot of watching people watch opera, so maybe it was right to erase it with one line. (laughs) There's something interesting about how his music is received by the public. I think you're right. The movie doesn't ever 100% really get to how to portray. If anything, I think the movie doesn't spend enough time on Mozart's work outside of court because... Again, I haven't done a ton of historical research into Mozart's life, but like from the movie's portrayal, he wasn't well received at court, but we spend so much time there, right? And then he was well received by the common folk and the Magic Flute was kind of a vaudeville work. Like it was a silly, and if you've ever seen the Magic Flute, it's real weird. Like they show you kind of the good bits. There's like a whole real long stretch about like fake Egyptian religious practices and like a whole bunch of like tiny little angel boys. That opera goes on for a bit. But <laughs> the Papageno stuff is real fun. That part's really interesting. And I wish the movie spent a little bit more time there rather than it just being shown to us as like a symptom of Mozart's decline. 
Yeah, I mean, again, this gets to, are we telling a fake story about him and Salieri, or are we telling the story of Mozart's life? And we're not telling the story of Mozart's life. It's a little bit of both. I think the most compelling parts of this film are the made-up bits. I think the Salieri relationship is the thing we're really trying to get to, and that is essentially invented. I think that's right. You know, the scenes between the two of them are the ones that really crackle. I think maybe it's probably time for us to start wrapping this up. So, like, let's talk about the final scene where they do get to spend a lot of time together. I loved the first half of this scene, I will say. As with other things in this film, I think it went on for too long. There's only so much two people writing down music that I can be invested in. And again, because they didn't have a ton of relationship buildup going up to this, it sort of felt like we were backloaded with, oh, we have to get all of this built in before we kill our lead character. I'm the opposite. I love watching them work. As a musical mediocrity myself, Like I just completely relate to watching Salieri almost be able to follow what Mozart is just throwing out of his brain. And that feeling of wanting that kind of talent that Abraham is able to convey in that scene. And also, like, the excitement of their collaboration is what could have been if they had decided to be friends or, you know, if Mozart had been easier to handle and if Salieri hadn't been so proud. In the same way that the final monologue is a wonderful culmination of what came before it, even if what came before it is loose, this is a wonderful culmination of all of their relationship scenes. I just wanted this to be a more pared down movie that was mostly just scenes of their relationship. All right. Well, I think that is a great place to bring us to final thoughts. I guess you've kind of elucidated them, but Chris, do you have anything else to add here about Amadeus? No, I I, I liked half of this movie. Oh my God. <laughs> the death glare, everyone. <laughs> I liked 60% of this movie. Does that help? This movie won a billion Academy Awards, you monster. I don't know if this will shock anyone. I'm not a voting Academy member. I guess it is fair to say that the same Academy that awarded Crash Best Picture awarded this movie Best Picture. That being said, I kind of love this movie from start to finish. It fails a lot of things that I expect in modern movies or in movies that I watch fresh. But I think this movie is just so lush. I could watch Tom Hulse and F. Murray Abraham spar in scene after scene. And I agree with you that they don't get to do enough of that. But I don't have any complaints. All right. Well, dear viewer, I hope that you enjoyed this movie as much as Brie did. Wow. And Brie, I hope that you enjoy our next movie as much as I do, because we are going to do a mutual favorite because it's an episode on the fives. Boop, boop. What will we be watching? What I believe is already a favorite of yours, because that's how this works. We are watching 1995's Clueless. It's a Paul Rudd movie that you might not hate Paul Rudd in. Oh, justice for Paul Rudd. Please tune in next week to hear me not complain about him. We'll see you then. Goodbye. (laughs) Oh, my God full boob window a la whatever that superhero is.